Bienvenue and welcome to Cirque du Sound, a sonic trip brought to you by Cirque du Soleil, where we examine the origins of creativity with some of today's most forward thinkers, doers, and creators. My name is Michel Laprise. I'm the creative guide and the stage director of some of our shows, and I'll be your host for today. At Cirque du Soleil, the ideas of our shows, they can really come from anywhere. We're often inspired by how the creative arts intersect with other disciplines, even ones that aren't traditionally viewed as creative, such as, say, entomology. We are fascinated by the life cycles of insects and how insects, those things that are so small and feared sometimes, so misunderstood, those can have such a huge impact on our lives. And we believe that our curiosity will lead us to understand and learn from the life cycle of these bugs and maybe even become buggies. And so today on the show, we're going to delve into this a little bit more. And I'm going to be asking, how can the study of insects, a widely feared and misunderstood class of organisms, open up creative possibilities and benefit humanity? Right now in the background, you're hearing the spellbinding music of OVO. OVO is a very unique and colorful show that's set in an ecosystem where insects work, play, fight, and look for love in a non-stop riot of energy in motion. The name OVO means egg in Portuguese because you must know that the creator-director of that show is Deborah Kolker from Brazil. And the egg, of course, is a timeless symbol of the life cycle. The show is staged in a way that it really shrinks the audience down to the size of bugs and pushes them into the colorful world of insects. The audience are put face-to-face -face with organisms that they would normally, quite literally, look down on and shy away from. Today on the show, we want to explore how the study of insects opens up so many creative possibilities and ultimately benefits humanity. And we want to look at the relationship between fear and creativity. Joining us on our journey today is someone who has a deep passion for insects and has been labeled some great nicknames, such as your friendly neighborhood entomologist, <laughs> I love this one, and even Dr. Bugs. I'm so excited to introduce Dr. Samuel Ramsey, the founder and director of the Ramsey Research Foundation. Hello, Dr. Sammy. Welcome to the Citrusai podcast. Hey there. I'm so excited to be here. This is going to be awesome. Have you seen OVO on video or live? So I have some feelings about this. OVO came out when I was in graduate school. Okay. And I was very, very, very busy with a project where I was actually working to try to get a parasite that I was studying, a parasite of honeybees. I was trying to get it to lay eggs. 
And it's no. so funny to me that I ended up missing Oval because <laughs> I was so focused on this parasite's eggs. So I succeeded. Wow. I got the parasite to lay eggs uh-huh. and it was a really big deal because it's the first time it's happened in the lab. But it was no longer playing in my area after I finished the project. Wait, 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 wait. You were trying to get the parasite to lay eggs, okay? This is not my everyday yeah. life uh, <laughs> task. How do you do that? So You talk? You talk thing. sweet words? <laughs> <laughs> not quite. I mean, you know, you play a little Barry White, turn down the candles, <laughs> yeah. and yeah, that whole deal. Well, what you really have to do in a circumstance like that, you have to shrink yourself down, just like you were talking about for... The performance mm-hmm. of Oho, you have to shrink yourself down to the size of an insect. You have to try to think about what an insect wants and needs to feel comfortable because you're not going to leave your baby somewhere where you don't think that it's going to be safe and have ah. everything that it needs. Mm. And so I had to figure out all the things that this parasite needs, all the nutrition, the right environment, the right temperature, the right humidity. And when you finally get everything just right, you're aware of it because something happens that hasn't happened before. You see an egg deposited. Dr. Ramsey, you've done a lot of research revolving around insects. So let me Mm -hmm. ask you this. You know, aside from butterflies and maybe ladybugs, a lot of insects have had a bad reputation, at least in our very immediate culture of North America. And because people think, oh, they invade your home, your personal space, Mm. they sometimes eat your food or leave their germs all over it. And generally, insects are not very well liked by many people. So before we get into more of your work, what made you interested in studying bugs? I think it's important to say insects are not liked by many people here in the Western world. I've done a lot of traveling and experienced other cultures and gotten to see that people get really excited about insects, mm-hmm. throw entire festivals for them in other countries, wow. especially in Southeast Asia. There is just a beauty to the ways that people open their windows and their doors and welcome that part of life into their lives. Insects are absolutely incredible organisms. I like to say that entomology is the study of diversity. Because there is no more diverse group of organisms on this entire planet. Three out of every four animals is an insect. Wow. There are more than one million described species of insects. And diversity is all about figuring out new, novel ways to live in a particular area, to solve the different problems that life throws at you. And one of the most amazing things is that there's so much that we can learn from insects. We Mm. learned how to make paper from watching paper wasps thin out reeds and strands of plants into this very flat surface. And we thought, oh, I could write on that. Mm. So we took the idea, gave them none of the credit. You know how we do. <laughs> we also, we've seen so many things that insects have done and been awed by them. And that's because these creatures have figured out more than a million ways to solve all of the same problems that life has thrown at us. It, it honestly is a real waste that we've spent so much time being afraid of them because insects are the most fascinating thing you've ever stepped on. When I first figured that out, I was a little kid. I was seven years old. I was absolutely terrified of insects. I was so afraid that I didn't want to go outside for recess because there are too many bugs out there. I was having nightmares about them on a regular basis. And my dad would have to run in the room at night and like step on invisible bugs to get me to fall asleep because I was that anxious. And what happened? My parents decided, you know what? This has become 
an irrational fear and it's not going away on its own. We have to do something about this or it's going to interrupt the rest of his life. And so they took me to a library. They got me a library card at age seven oh. and they told me people fear what they don't understand. So it's and I believed them because I was this little kid and parents seemed like they know everything. Little did I know that they had no idea what they were doing. They've told me since then that they were going to try a little bit of everything and hope <laughs> something worked. And that happened to be the thing. Because after a summer of constantly going to the library and checking out book after book after book about insects, I learned that they had the same motivations that we have. They want the same things that we want. They build these fascinating, incredibly intricate, complex societies. I remember the first book that made me really feel some feelings towards insects was called Chirping Insects. Just a really mm. simple book about creatures like katydids and crickets that make a lot of noise. Noise that kept me up at night because I had really sensitive ears and I hated crickets and katydids. To find out that they weren't making this noise to get on my nerves but were instead making this noise because they were lonely and they needed to find a mate. They were mm. singing a beautiful love song of I want someone else in my life. That hit me so hard as a little kid. Now, I remember riding back from the library with my mom and telling her, hey, mom, I want to be an entomologist when I grow up. Age seven, knew the word and everything because I'd done quite a bit of wow. reading. And clearly, I was an accurate narrator of things because, what, 20-something years later... Here I am, the endowed professor of entomology at the University of Colorado Boulder. I like the fact <laughs> that your parents were really like, instead of ignoring your fear, try, trying to just like, just, okay, let's face it. Let's give him the tools, hoping that they're the right tools. And then from this, you build your power. It's funny because I, I love insects too. And, and I was very, very careful with my twin girls of four years old. I wanted to raise them with as little fear as possible because fear is just like blocks you from other people. And from yourself mm -hmm. and stuff. So I really found out that up to the moment they were at the daycare, they had no fear. And then suddenly, oh, one of them feared the spider. And I said, what is going on here? Where did you learn that? Mm -hmm. And it was one of the educator who had screamed mm -hmm. at seeing. A, so I made a lot of work to just reestablish. And, and I work with riggers who make like all the rigging systems. Like rigging is, if you suspend a trapeze, how do you do that? So... I, this is one of my favorite group of, of staff at CIFT. So when I look at the spider web, I can appreciate how complex it is. So I find out like now they're really passionate to the point that they, they bring things in the house all the time. And I'm okay with this. <laughs> There's no insect that repels them. So your job and our job here is a celebration of life. So always about bugs. And it's funny that we're talking about kids and you are being a, a child fascinated by insects because, you know, in creation and the process of creation at Cirque is, is very intuitive and our filter of decision is not, does it make sense? It's more like, does it create an emotion? So mm. we created the OVO with this director, Debra Kolker from Brazil, and it was never intended to be for kids. But we found out the first four days of shows that the kids were reacting so well to that show. And it, it brings up the topic of fear. And what happens mm -hmm. where we confront fear? Fear is in everyday's life in an acrobat. And it, I was surprised when I started to work at SIG that uh, an aerialist, I thought, okay, she's really comfortable in the hoop up there. Yes and no. Like, she still fears. But she's dancing with her fear. But every day she's fearful. So that commands even more respect. 
a lot of artists will say, do the thing that you're afraid of, because this will mm-hmm. lead you along an authentic and rewarding artistic path. So we do this. We control the risk all the time, but we do not evacuate fear because there's a lot of teaching in that. Can you talk about how gathering knowledge helps you overcome your fear in other aspects of your life? Like, for example, when you started to teach, is that is it a pattern? Like gathering knowledge makes you overcome your fear? I think it is a pattern that gathering knowledge helps you overcome your fear because when you're uninformed about a thing, you behave out of instinct. Mm-hmm. You go with your sort of lizard reptilian brain and it's all about protection and so there are these Mm. quick jerky motions that don't always translate to something worthwhile oftentimes it's about getting distance from a thing Ah. or destroying a thing but when you actually learn about something when you no longer have to interact with it on the basis of your basal emotions and your instincts then you can have a much more complicated relationship with that thing. You can have a more intricate understanding of it and apply that abroad. Like with teaching my students, I've had the opportunity to watch them navigate through their understanding and connection to insects. It tends to start with fear, but it always ends up with something much more complex and interesting than that at the end. And they may not be in love with insects by the end of it, But their feelings toward them are always much more complicated and informed than they were prior to that. And I think that that's incredibly worthwhile. You didn't say like it goes from fear to like just complete acceptance. It goes from fear, which is very simple, to something more Mm -hmm. complicated. Mm -hmm. I love that. Our world is a very complicated place. Uh Everything uh isn't always to be loved under all circumstances or to be feared under all circumstances. And actually understanding the set of circumstances where something should be loved and admired, and the contexts where it should be feared. We as human beings shouldn't always be feared. There are times where we definitely should be loved or admired, but there are circumstances where people can be dangerous. Mm -hmm. And there are some out there who don't want you to take the time to understand the subtle nuances there. So I remember during one of our presidential elections, there was someone trying to drum up a level of fear in the American populace against an entire group of people. Don't take the time to understand these people. And so they gave this analogy. Uh, What if I told you that in this bowl of Skittles, one of them is full of cyanide, would you still eat the Skittles? And the idea is to try to give you this, this feeling that in this group of people, even if some of them are nice, one of them is going to try to kill you. And it's really sad, but... There's so much control that you can have over a person Ah. if you try to get them, don't think, don't think, just behave out of fear. Then you can easily control them. You can get them to do the things that you want them to do much more easily. And someone brought this up to me after I gave a TED Talk about specifically this subject. And they said, well, shouldn't we fear all insects because we don't understand which ones are the dangerous ones? And... Yes, that is one option you can go with. You can be afraid of things because you don't understand where the danger is. But a much better option is to take the time to understand those things. Then you don't have to waste all of your time and your energy with fear because more than 99% of your fear is going to be a waste while you're waiting for that less than 1% chance that you're actually in danger. Learn about insects. Insects are really polite. There's actually something called aposematic coloration. Insects will let you know if they are poisonous 
because they don't want you to have to eat them to find out. Because then everybody loses. (laughs) So they will advertise this with alternating colors between black and yellow or black and orange uh, or black and red. And so ladybugs, oddly enough, are a poisonous insect. You should not eat them. <laughs> so definitely no, warn your daughter. Not for my daughter, Ella. <laughs> but it's not like it's actually going to be particularly dangerous yeah. for someone the size of a child. But if she ate like a handful of them, she'd have some serious indigestion. <laughs> but for a bird or a mouse, that's actually a pretty rough experience that they have from consuming wow. one. So they've learned that if they see black and red, or alternating bands of black and yellow or black and orange, mm-hmm. that they should stay away from this creature. It's a stop sign. Insects have been using that for millions of years prior to us using it. And the amazing thing about it is, after I learned that, I didn't have to walk around all the time worried that every bug was trying to poison me. I know which ones are and which ones aren't. I know which ones are chemically defended and which ones aren't. And it doesn't take that much work to learn Uh these things. But prior to that, I would have wasted so much energy on fear. So Mm -hmm. what would be your advice for kids or adults how to get over their fear of bugs. I've got a lot of advice there because okay. I've I, I, there was one way that worked for me. So I know a tried and true method of reading about them can be very, very, very useful. But I think it's also really helpful to interact with them because after I read about them, then I went outside to test my knowledge. Ah, so it turns out that this grasshopper isn't trying to kill my nerves or Uh, It turns out that bees aren't interested in my demise. They just want to go on about their business and Mm -hmm. not have me take their honey. Those sorts of things. Every time I met with an insect that I thought was in some way out for my ill, and it wasn't, it helped to diminish the sense of fear that I felt before. Oftentimes, I felt a bit silly about the way that I had built these creatures up because you think to yourself, what a waste of time it would be to wake up in the morning as an insect and think, How many humans can I terrorize today? You got to have better things uh, on your schedule than that, right? And then in addition to learning about them from books, learning about them in person, it's also really helpful to actually interact with other people who have either been through this Mm -hmm. level of fear or who can just talk to you about their passion. One of the things that I think is very transformative in these contexts is listening to people talk about just how passionate they are about insects, how wonderful insects are. David Attenborough is really incredible at this sort of thing. I loved his documentary, Life in the Undergrowth. And just listening to the passion and awe in his voice as he watches spiders living their life on a silken thread and how they're spinning this tiny little thread through the air that is stronger than steel of the same thickness and how silk as thick as a pencil could stop a bus Like that kind of stuff, when you listen to people in awe of it, it does something to you. It reminds you that that world is much more complex than simply the fear that you started with. Hmm. So I'd like you to talk about saving the bees. Because you've received multiple awards for your research on the Varroa parasite. (laughs) That's the one that you were playing Barry White music to, okay? (laughs) And you're currently working on the Fight the Might initiative which is founded Correct. by the beekeeping community, but it's so crucial. So I, we, I think we need to hear from you about that. Absolutely. And thanks for giving me this platform to advocate for an incredible insect mm-hmm. that's done a lot of good for us as human beings. So insects in general are very important for our way of life. They maintain pretty much every terrestrial ecosystem on this planet. Mm. They are essential 
to how our world functions. But there are certain creatures that rise above the normal standard of supporting ecosystems to being what we call ecosystem engineers. These organisms are keystone species. That means if you remove them from a context, the whole thing falls apart. There are some that are important, but even if removed from a context, things can carry on. There are keystone species that you just can't do certain things without. A big reason for why honeybees exist as a keystone species, as as ecosystem engineers in some ways, is simply because they pollinate very, very well, and they pollinate a ton of different plants. Now, there are some insects like squash bees that can pollinate squash better than a honeybee can. And that's great. But the thing that makes honeybees so remarkable is that they are generalists. You can bring them into pretty much any ecosystem and they will find plants to pollinate and they'll be very good at it. The other thing that's quite remarkable is that they practice something called flower fidelity. And flower fidelity means that they are faithful to certain flowers. Really? Like, they've got a type. They've got a type. Exactly. They've got a type. They've got a type. (laughs) It may sound like that runs at odds with what I just said earlier about them being generalists, but they only practice flower fidelity for a time. So a specific set of flowers that they've fallen in love with, they will be in love with that group of flowers until they return to the colony. And then they'll go out and find another group of flowers. Why is that important? Well, other bee species that are more generalist, they will fly to one flower And they will carry pollen on their bodies, on all of their hairs, and they'll land on another flower. And all of that pollen is wasted because the pollen from one flower, that's the genetic material from that plant. It doesn't work on another species of flower. So if you are going to be the the best partner to a flower, you are only going to go to flowers of that same species. And that's something that's allowed honeybees to become some of the most rewarding pollinators on this planet because the flowers that they land on, when they go to another one, they're always bringing pollen from that species to that flower. It makes them incredible pollinators. And you'd have to think, why would they do this? Uh, It would be more efficient for them if they just collected pollen from any of the flowers that happen to be in that one area where they are. Why are they only going to the same flowers? I think I have an answer because their behaviors will allow the duplication of flowers so there's more resources of pollen. Their survival (laughs) is connected to the survival of the flowers. Exactly. It's a mutualism. I love them even more. Wow. Yeah, isn't it incredible? It's a mutualism. Um, My research is all about symbioses. Mm. And symbioses are really close relationships between organisms. They're not always good for both creatures. Parasitism is a symbiosis. People often forget that. And they think that symbiosis only means mutualism. But honeybees exemplify a mutualistic symbiosis where their benefit is tied to the benefit of the flowers. And so they, even though this could become and has become a conflict in some kinds of pollinators where they will actually try to steal nectar from flowers and things of that nature, the honeybees tend to play fair as much as possible and they try to benefit the flowers and the flowers benefit them. My God, we want bees for politicians. <laughs> it's true. They're, they're, I fully agree with you. Oh, my God, my God. So what are the solutions? What can I do in my everyday life? Mm-hmm. And what are the solutions that have been advanced? I hope there have been some. What's going on right now? Are we saving the bees? As someone who is working specifically in a field where I want to see the bees thrive as much as possible, it's always nice to get an update on what's been changing. Mm-hmm. We know that 
the same way that we have been in a pandemic over the past couple of years, the honeybees have been in a pandemic for decades. Uh, there is a disease that spread between colonies, and it is a parasitic disease from this parasite Varroa destructor. It's a parasite that we haven't understood for a long time because, unfortunately, there wasn't always a substantial investment in understanding the diseases that these creatures are facing before the disease becomes a big issue. Yeah. Oftentimes, we wait for it to become a gigantic problem and for it to destroy all kinds of livelihoods before we invest in it. Well, we've really started investing time in understanding these parasitic diseases. And we know now, actually from the research that I conducted as a graduate student, that this parasite is causing so many problems because it's feeding on the bee's liver. It actually releases digestive enzymes into the bee's body. You probably didn't know bees had livers, right? Yeah. <laughs> they totally do. And they're really important. <laughs> and so when they release the saliva into the bee's body, it liquefies the bee's liver. And then the mites suck that out of the bee's body. And you can probably guess, that's not great for you. You know, mm -hmm. if a mosquito landed on you and liquefied a chunk of your liver and sucked it out of your body, you'd probably be, you know, a little upset mm -hmm. about that, mm -hmm. right? And that's a lot worse than what we thought was happening because prior to this, we thought that they were just draining out a small amount of the bee's blood. And blood is replaced every day yeah. inside yeah. of the bee's body. But they can't grow a new liver. They can't even grow a new section of liver that's been removed. And so they lose the functioning of that organ over time, and it makes them very, very ill. And unfortunately, the parasite is easily transmissible between colonies. Uh, and we found in recent studies of this parasite that it's present in close to 99% of honeybee colonies throughout the U.S. It's finally become a cosmopolitan parasite. It's, every, it's on every continent in nearly every country where bees are kept. It just reached Australia, which was the final bastion the only place where it wasn't present. So we have kind of been on this treadmill. We've been running as fast as we can to keep the colonies alive and going as long as possible until a solution that is more sustainable is brought to bear. Well, currently, we are spending a lot of our time and a lot of our money applying pesticides inside of colonies and oh. treating colonies. And it puts a lot more pesticide into the environment the alternative is to let our bees be like, you know, mangy cattle roaming around in a field covered in parasites. It's just not ethical to let those bees oh, no, I... live in that situation. Well, thankfully, there are at least a couple of labs right now working on developing more sustainable solutions to these problems that utilize an understanding of how this parasite feeds and its uh, natural behaviors to attempt to develop a new system that could eventually eradicate this parasite rather than just control it slowly over time. So I'm very much looking forward to seeing those mm. novel treatment options exist. But at the moment, it, it takes time for us to understand the impact that could have on the environment. And we want to make sure that we don't just throw something new in there that could have non-target effects. So what can we do well. personally? Like tomorrow I wake up, what can I do in terms of my impact to save the bees? To save the for world? sure, I'd... Narrow it down to three things. Okay. One, it's very, very, very important that we make sure that our pollinators have plenty of food and a really well-stocked pharmacy. Honeybees are incredible pharmacists. Oftentimes when they get sick, they can find things in the natural environment around them that can cure them. There are wow. all kinds of plant resins with antibacterial and antifungal properties. And evolutionarily over time, they've found these things to be very effective 
The problem is they can only utilize them if they are in their vicinity. But what have we as humans done? We have unfortunately gotten rid of the diversity of plants around us in favor of a bunch of grass. And we will use all the water in the world to keep that grass as green as possible when it has really no ecological benefit to the vast majority of organisms around it. But we can do so much better if we simply plant a garden. Even one square foot of diversity of flowers planted in an area can be huge for pollinators. So if you can find the time to plant Mm. native plants in your area or even rewild your lawn, stop letting it be this jade wasteland of only grass and actually turn it into this multicolored, pristine field of flowers. It's actually fairly easy. Stop mowing your lawn. Mm -hmm. You save yourself some time and... The the bees are a lot happier. Sometimes your HOA isn't as happy, but, you know, sacrifices. (laughs) I hope you're enjoying my conversation with founder and director of the Ramsey Research Foundation, entomologist Dr. Samuel Ramsey. We're talking about many things, and one of them being how leaning into our fears by learning about various kinds of insects can facilitate growth, creativity, and boundless solutions for humankind. Fans go first. Whether it's early access to seasonal deals or pre-sales, pick your tickets before everybody else. Sign up for ClubSec today and you'll be the first to hear about access to special events, pre-sales and discounts. Take a look behind the curtain and enjoy up-to-date news on all things Cirque du Soleil, including shows, artists and latest innovations. Visit CirqueDuSoleil.com to subscribe. Just a quick reminder, you're listening to Cirque du Sound, a brand new podcast from Cirque du Soleil, looking at the interdisciplinary roots of creativity. My name is Michel Laprise, and if you like what you're hearing, I hope you'll tell your friends about us and leave us a review. I would love to hear more about you and from you. So, Dr. Ramsey. The world of bugs is so fascinatingly complex because the more I listen to you, the more I realize you're talking about us mm-hmm. and the whole notion of interdependence and diversity. It's very almost mythological, the study of the insects, because it's the same symbols and the same forces in, in action and that what could lead us to happiness or what could lead us to destruction. So I want to play you a little clip. You will hear the voice of the late Georges Brossard He was the consulting entomologist that we work with for OVO uh, Creation. He's a rock star in Quebec, and he used to live in a big, big house in Saint-Bruno near Montreal, and he was living with the insects into his house. And he donated this whole collection, most of it, to found the Insectarium in Montreal, Mm. just beside the Botanical Garden. So let's listen to the voice of Georges Brassard. The mission is simple. I want to reconcile humans with this animal class that has a lot of class insects. Insects are producers, pollinators, scavengers, farmers, feeders. Their contribution is huge. The hurt and the planet wouldn't be what it is without the presence and the activities of my friend, the insect. What do you think of what you just heard? I fully agree. I mean, 
Look, when you get a bunch of insect enthusiasts all together, we tend to have very specific thoughts. <laughs> and we tend to agree very well with each other that insects are a group of organisms that have done so many things way before we ever figured it out. They were making paper. They were farming. They were creating these complex societies before we had ever even stepped foot on the planet, um, before the creatures that would eventually evolve into us uh, ever climbed down from trees. And so seeing what these insects are capable of, unfortunately, that's a privilege that very few people actually indulge in because they spend so much time being afraid of them. But it's funny because I see a change in the culture. If I compare it to when I was at daycare or early school and what's happened in Quebec now, probably every little class has a little aquarium with insects. The kids are more educated into that. I think there's a lot more to do, but I can see that this is something that is very present now and they just love mm -hmm. it. I know that something you really believe in is making all of your findings and really any scientific finding and discoveries accessible for everyone. And the ability to articulate and present it is just as important as the skills needed in the lab. And we can tell this approach is working from how excited everyone gets when you talk about insects. <laughs> You've been featured in nature masterclasses using storytelling techniques while giving scientific presentations. And you also use social media platforms to spread your enthusiasm around the STEM field and inspire the next generation to share that excitement and sense of adventure. That's something that we at Cirque du Soleil also try to do with our shows. We, we love taking complex ideas and topics and turning them into wonderful stories, images, visual poems that can be understood really by everybody. It doesn't matter what language they speak or what they do for a living, where they come from, how educated they are. So... How do you use those storytelling techniques to showcase your findings in a way that appeals to a lot of people with sometimes less scientific knowledge? I love seeing people who tell stories well, especially in uh, non-traditional forms. And I loved seeing just a story being woven through the acts. The very first time I saw Cirque du Soleil, I think I was in, in high school. And I just thought it was the most incredible thing to see a story woven through what are typically a bunch of disparate acts. And I've learned over time that that same thing can apply in presentations that I give about insects, where people can think of it as just a bunch of disparate facts that I'm presenting to them or a bunch of disconnected slides. But when I weave a story mm. throughout mm -hmm. and I let them understand the beginning, the middle and the end, my favorite part is watching people and looking at them track through this story with me and seeing that they often reach the conclusion before I even get oh. there. That's how I know that they're a part of this story with me. And that helps me not have to tell them what they should understand or believe. Instead, they have figured it out. And that drives that point home so much deeper into their subconscious than anything else that I could have done. The power of storytelling is one of the most remarkable things on this planet. It's why cavemen painted on walls. It's one of the things that unites us as humans is that we all have a narrative and we can bring each other into the beauty of that narrative. And I'm hoping that more people will see that ability and it will help to inspire compassion and understanding between us. It feels more empowering if people are going to the conclusions themselves. And you said that fear creates distance. 
what mm-hmm. you're doing creates proximity and empowerment mm-hmm. people who listen to you. I'd like to attend some of your workshops. Before I let <laughs> you go, Dr. Renzi, can you talk about the, a specific personal experience when your curiosity about insects led to a greater understanding, not of the insects, but of yourself and of the world we live in? And I know we can apply that to so many things, but I'm sure you have a story to tell here. I certainly do. Uh, I love having a story to tell. And my story with that is simply, I was a little kid. And when I say little, I mean that literally. I was a very small child. Mm. I was like, what, 45 pounds in the second grade? A tiny little skinny kid, shorter than everybody in his class, skinnier than everybody in his class. And seeing insects, these tiny diminutive organisms, They are able to accomplish incredible things. They can build structures visible from space. They can create ecosystems. And without them, we lose whole sections of our world. It was just so remarkable to me. And it inspired. It helped me see that there are ways that I've looked down on myself for not being as tall as everyone else, for not being as beefy as everyone else. I don't need to be in order to accomplish incredible things. And there are actually a number of things that I can do better because I am a more compactable human. And Mm -hmm. so it really lets you lean into your power and understand what it is that you are capable of to understand these lovable organisms. It stands to me that, you know, accepting the insect, the diversity of all that is accepting your own diversity in so many parts of yourself. Correct. Oh my God, it's weird that we're getting into the philosophy more and more. <laughs> the way we destroy nature is the way we're destroying ourselves. But not that Sunday, because we really embrace people. Working at Cirque every morning, I'm excited to come here because I know we are making a difference. This is more than a job. This is here, it's a family, and it's a way where we grow and we feel accepted. And also we know that what we're doing on a daily basis, the shows we're making, are making people really generally happy and not just individually happy, but more connected with people. So I tend to realize right now that we're very ecological in our way of making those shows because it's not about one species. You know, like there's a principle in Africa, um, Ubuntu. I am who I am because of who we are. And it's I can connect it with your mission and ours too. So I want to... And thank you deeply, Dr. Samuel Ramsey, for joining us today. It's been a, such an enlightening conversation, and I've loved talking with you about how curiosity, when you follow it, brings so many benefits and happiness and cut that distance that fear can install between people and within an individual. So, when, you know, whether you're an acrobat or you're someone in front of an insect, I think those same principles apply Curiosity is the enemy of fear. So let's be more curious. Curiosity is also the basis, a lot of basis of creativity. And through examining our fears, we gain insights into ourselves, our art, and our word. Thank you, Doctor. For sure. Thank you. To the listeners, I want to thank you for your presence. Join us for each episode as we delve into the themes and ideas that underpin Cirque du Soleil shows. Learn more about the roots of creativity and how to keep your eyes, mind, and heart open to new sources of creative inspiration. And remember, it can come from anywhere and anyone. Thank you so much for listening to Cirque du Sound. I am Michel Lapiz. À la prochaine.
Cirque du Sound is produced by Cirque du Soleil with technical and story production by Char Audio. If you like what you heard today on Cirque du Sound, please subscribe, comment, and leave a review. 